0: So, this is an honor and a privilege. No,
1: my honor and my privilege. Can you tell us your name, please? Rodrigo Arboleda. So, we're at
0: Bitcoin 2021. It's a cryptocurrency, it's the future.
1: But you've always been about the future. Well, at least I have been aspiring to be in the future. I have been, I'm an architect by profession, but from the early 1980s. I got uh, hit by the bug of education and technology back in MIT in Boston when I went to school as an architect. And ever since, I've been very much involved with education and technology. How technology can help education to bridge the gap between children that didn't have access to knowledge and how technology could uh, facilitate access to, to education and to knowledge because of the new technologies of the digital age
0: and that's one of the biggest gaps and it has been one of the biggest gaps for a long
1: time absolutely but you know something Uh, paradoxically the the covid um, pandemic has helped a lot understand at the public level the importance of two elements that are crucial to bridge the gap number one that the need for a high-speed internet access to children in the lower part of the, of the economic system. And the second one is the equipment that the child can use in order to navigate in that highest high-speed type of uh, uh, highway. The new highway of the future of the 5 gs is not anymore asphalt or cement. It's a, uh, it's a highway in the waves And that is gonna be the one that children are gonna navigate in the future in order to have access to knowledge. It's essential. And therefore, the COVID created the understanding of two words that in the dictionary were not present until that time. One is the word exponential. At the beginning of my, my talks, I had to spend about five or seven minutes explaining to people what the word exponential meant. COVID is an exponential phenomenon because it is spreading in an exponential fashion. So nowadays to talk about exponential doesn't require so much effort for people to understand. At the same time, people were subjected to such a lockdown that in the lower end of the economic pyramid, children were locked down with no internet and no instrument to have to help them navigate into the internet so those two necessities are now so much at the front at the forefront of of people that if we don't really react right now to that and create the capacity for children in the lower end of the pyramid to navigate in this new realm we will be damned
0: yeah because all learning went online absolutely I have my daughter is past that age I have a one-year-old as well but JL he has uh, kids that had to go online and if you couldn't go online you're going you, you, they missed the gap of education
1: and we live here in the states in which we are privileged can you imagine this in Africa or India can you imagine this in Latin America in the lower in the lower side of the, of the slums and Right. And children were locked for more than a year completely out of the out of the system for education. Yeah. This is unthinkable.
0: Well, I want to take it back a little bit uh-huh. to, to for me one of the most tremendous initiatives that I've seen in my lifetime, which is your initiative in Africa. Fantastic. Oh, it was an outreach, not just in Africa, also, I think it started in Colombia. It was worldwide. Worldwide, yeah, initiative.
1: Yeah, we, we call it a one laptop per child. The idea that was not the laptop per se at the end. The laptop was only the vehicle to have a child in the African savannah or in the Andean mountains or in the jungles of the Amazon or in India or in Southeast Asia to have access to knowledge through a very low cost, high uh, speed, but low energy consumption device, which is a laptop that was designed at MIT precisely for children and for education. It was not a device that we took from an adult type of a market and we lowered the standards to be used by a child. It was a laptop designed from the very beginning to be used for a child and for education. And it was a a monumental effort and it was a revolution. We ended up delivering as a non-for-profit more than three million of these laptops worldwide. And Africa, for me, was one of the most rewarding type of experiences that I have ever ever had in my life.
0: Yeah, the amazing initiative. Now with that, now we have have mobile phones, which it does help. Laptops are, are, are very important but, even now, but the, the bridge between the laptops, the mobile phones, and access to the Internet.
1: Yeah, at that time when we started this in 2005, the iPhone was not yet in existence. So um, it was a revolution. It was a revolution. And Stephen Jobs was one of the first uh, person who really uh, helped us with this endeavor. Uh, and, and it was a... It was a real, very rewarding experience because we were able to deliver to children in the most remote places uh, a, a system by which they could really have access to knowledge in an unprecedented scale.
0: Yeah, I'm a big believer in having information and education become the light.
1: Absolutely, and it was empowering the child to become the architect of his own destiny. Right that we imposing on him what to learn. He was capable of looking for the things that he wanted to learn. Right. And it was a way for a child to learn about learning and to think about thinking. Take a look at those plays of words, which is not a play of words. Learning about learning and thinking about thinking, you know? Right. So absolutely. So it was it was more than a laptop. The laptop was only the vehicle. People right. people have a tend to confuse the They turned the thinking it was a laptop project. And the laptop was not only the vehicle. It was a social democratic movement uh, more than anything else.
0: Yeah, the ability for them to get, it was a vessel for them to get the education, for them to be able to get the
1: knowledge. And to democratize access to knowledge. It was really a, a social movement more than anything else.
0: You know, I can look, and you mentioned COVID, I can look even now, even in communities here in the States, for people to be to be able to be vaccinized in that first wave, they needed to get online to be able to get vaccinated Absolutely. so that there's still these barriers that are there. Absolutely.
1: And we need to really, I mean, if there's one thing that the United States should and could do right now is to create a super highway measured in gigabits per second and not in megabits per second. So all the things that you do with your work, which is a streaming and video and audio and, and the combination of games and all of these things that are streamed, can be accessed by children in the lower end of the socio-economic pyramid. So you, what you guys are doing is fantastic and I really want to congratulate you for what you guys are doing.
0: Thank you. Well, hopefully we can connect on that. Um, but you told me something before the interview started, something about Rwanda. And yes. as we know, Rwanda, 20 years ago, 20-some-odd years ago, they had a, like, a, a, a civil war,
1: a, a It was a genocide. genocide. It was a genocide. Listen, uh, when I arrived into Rwanda and, uh, and we delivered the half a million laptops, it was a celebration. And President Paul Kagame was there. And I, I, I sort of ventured to ask him, why did you get into this? no, I mean, a country that was completely devastated that in 89 days 800,000 people were killed through a machete and I said, well uh, Rodrigo, very simple Uh, when I arrived after the genocide, one of the first things that I did was to convene my my cabinet and ask them, okay, what are the resources that we have in order to rebuild this country and we started to uh, build an inventory of the resources and we realized that we didn't have any seaports that we didn't have any navigable rivers that we didn't have a extensive agriculture we only have a small plots of land and that we didn't have what my neighbors had which could be considered a blessing or it could be considered a curse which was uranium gold uh, all of these other uh, uh, oil and gas and and, and, you, and diamonds and so forth. And then I realized, okay, what do we have left? And we realized that we had hundreds of thousands of children that were orphans. And we said, oh my God, our most important asset is the brains of hundreds of orphans. So we had dedicated to work with our our most important asset, which is the brains of the orphans of Rwanda. And that guy has created what it is considered today, the Singapore of Africa. He built the largest and most advanced fiber optics loop in the entire country. And you have to imagine the amount of children. I I was able to deliver at the time I was there about 780,000 computers. Uh, 780,000 computers and then that has grown enormously ever since so right now the amount of children that are now experts in programming uh, are absolutely incredible and that country is the most transparent and the most secure there's no hanky panky there and uh, and you can work and you can do business there with no corruption whatsoever All of that because of education.
0: That's amazing. And for our listeners, uh, there's a movie called Hotel Rwanda. Don Cheadle won the Academy Award for it. There's also an HBO movie called Sometimes in April. My friend Oris Aruro uh, was in that
1: movie. There's another country that you should look into, and that's Botswana. I've been to Botswana. Those two countries for me were very important. One, Rwanda was able to manage scarcity or poverty. And Botswana was able to manage wealth. The, and there's a movie called The United Kingdom. It's the story of the king of Botswana that abdicated in order to be able to come back to to Botswana and, and govern as a civic servant and run for president. And he was able to manage the discovery of the diamond uh, uh, mines. And then after one day, the, the the coal and copper in a manner that that country for the past 45 years has been able to manage wealth with no corruption wow. transparency and an absolute clean environment it is those two countries for me should be looked not only within africa but worldwide as an example of country that have been able to manage the creation of wealth good management and good uh, governance.
0: Wow. We're going to have to bring the podcast to Botswana and Rwanda, Absolutely. If, if you can connect us with people to talk to. The international Happy.
1: edition, I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. And if we can bring that here to this stage and bring it into the communities that are now in desperate need of re- rebirth after the COVID, especially the communities that are in the lower end of the spectrum, boy, you have an opportunity of a lifetime to leapfrog from obscurity into light.
0: Now I have a question, how much is it the technology and the hardware versus the access to
1: the internet, for example? Right now, the technology and the hardware, we focus on two issues. Number one, low consumption of energy. We believe that the bottleneck was energy more than connectivity. Connectivity is happening by by pure organic growth. And the second one was that that the laptop should be able to be read not only inside of a room at full color, but automatically to be converted into a monochrome reflected into the outside because many people and many children in Africa didn't have a room to study. They were under the tree or something to that effect. And the screen of that particular device, it was a monumental design of of an invention that is incredible. Even today, nobody has been able to invent a better screen than that one. Oh, wow. At a low consumption of energy. Those two things were very important.
0: Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. So, I'd like to talk about the future. Yep. What are you up to now?
1: And, then what, and what do you see for the future? What we are trying to do right now is to create a, a, a bridge between education and employment. Because what we are seeing in the communities in the third world and the lower end of the U.S. spectrum is that children spend a lot of money trying to be educated to get a degree and the frustration that they suffer after they all go out of college and don't find a job destroys all the effort and the motivation that they had in order to spend the enormous amount of money or to enter into the enormous amount of debt. That, ain't, that they enter in order to be educated. So we could create a better bridge between education and employment, that's one thing. Number two, we think that education has to change from one that until now, historically, it has been focusing on in, uh, supply. By, by supply, I mean the school or the school board or the colleges uh, publish. A curriculum to which people sign up into one that it should be focused on the demand let me give you an example in the us alone after the pandemic there's a five million deficit of persons that can manage the most fundamental elements of the carpentry of artificial intelligence big data analytics robotics visual uh, things and at the same time, we have unemployment of enormous amount of percentages. And, and and the companies that are requiring the people to work on this other side of the equation don't find people capable of doing that. So there's a, an, an irony. is an irony that you have a deficit of people, on the one hand, and a monumental amount of people that are unemployed. So if we could get a better bridge between education and employment, we will be doing a tremendous service to communities.
0: Can you talk about the importance of it's it's not new because it's been happening for a while, but the yeah. importance of AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning, both now and the future, what are some of the applications now and, and applications towards the future?
1: You know, in the in the in the old uh, 1400s and 1300s and 1300s, there was the invention of of the of the of the print. They they call it at the time that there was a Gutenberg, Gutenberg moment. Right. Today we have about ten Gutenberg moments coming up simultaneously, and those are creating what it is now called the uh, exponential technologies: artificial intelligence, robotics, you know, 3D printing. All of these things, each of them in their own, is being considered a Gutenberg moment. And that is the gigantic opportunity that we have to really transform the world from one that, we have only two options. Either we create a Mad Max world, or we create a Star Trek world. Thank you for keeping us in in the entertainment world. So we need to get into the Star Trek. Right. That's the future, not the Mad Max.
0: Absolutely.
1: And that's where we we can really all work together towards that end. And you guys that are in the in the video and audio and all of these entertainment and the creative and gaming and so forth can be of of, of creative uh, uh, inspiration to get all of these things in the hands of children.
0: Yeah. So we're seeing. You know, I've been tracking the autonomous car industry a lot of people yeah. don't realize in three years you know three to five years there's going to be so many autonomous cars on the road yeah. that it'll be a revolution like the iphone you know like the iphone transformed phone technology
1: Absolutely. and
0: ai and machine learning is a big part of that so for me that's one community that
1: well i own i own a tesla for the past almost six years now you just need a software upload that, that the the first tesla that i had the autonomous side of the equation was very primitive you cannot imagine what it is what this car is doing right now after six years the learning the auto learning experience that the software of the car that is being uploaded constantly right. and updated constantly it is a completely different vehicle what was, the same vehicle yeah. from what it was three years ago when I last converted it into my lease I have had two leases right now I would never go back to a regular vehicle again. Right. Yeah. This is, this is, and what that is happening here today at, Bit, at this Bitcoin conference is another example of the exuberation and the motivation and the excitement and the, and the, and the energy that you can see the, here today. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. It is fantastic. I'm so thrilled to be here today. I'm very honored to have been talking to you guys.
0: Thank you. Likewise. Yeah, This this has been amazing. We don't want to take up all, all of your time. My pleasure. This has been an honor and a privilege.
1: More, more to follow.
0: Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Because you're doing big things here. You you live here in Miami, but you're doing more, even more big things. With we, think,
1: we think that from Miami we can influence the rest of the world in a fashion that even Miamians don't understand and don't realize so far.
0: Okay, wait a minute. I'm not done. Then can you talk about that? I mean, because I know you know the focus right now is the tech industry. Let me
1: say, let me tell you an experience. When we first, when I was first asked to to run as the CEO of this non non for profit organization called uh, One Laptop per Child, which was based in Boston at MIT, uh, I told my, my classmate and, and, and founder of that project, Nicholas Negroponte, Nicholas, okay, if you want me to really work on the third world war uh, work. I need to move to Miami this, the whole company. And he said, um, well, you have complete authority to do whatever you want. And I moved the whole company, which was a non-for-profit company, but it was managed like a, like a for-profit entity or a corporation because what we were doing, we were moving about $11 million a month of computers as a non-for-profit organization with no capital no working capital. So before I ordered a computer in China, which was the manufacturing uh, uh, factory, I had to send them a letter of credit accepted by by Citibank. Otherwise, they wouldn't even start calling for the parts. So it was it was managed as a corporation, but it was a non for profit. But what I'm trying to tell you is that Miami is at the center of gravity. You are five hours away from Los Angeles, three hours away from New York, seven hours away from Europe, three hours away from Caracas, Bogota, Mexico City, Central America. You are in the same time zone of most of the Latin American cities. And you are in the cultural environment of the Latin American environment. So you don't have to really switch your mindset into a completely different culture. You are more in tune with the American way of doing things. So for us, moving to Miami, the whole pre- pro- project was a no-brainer, and it proved to be a very wise decision that we did. Because I could go to Africa, I could go to Europe, I could go to Latin America, and, and so forth. It was very wise.
0: So you see, Miami is a center place. They are the focus here now is the tech industry and, and, and ensuring that the tech industry grows here.
1: Believe me, I moved the whole place to Miami in two thousand and seven. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're way ahead of the curve. Okay.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So Let's talk about, and then I will really, really will be done. the, no. gro- the growth of, of tech here here in Miami, and how do you see that happening?
1: What we are trying to do right now is, through the cooperation between the private sector and the public sector and academia, create an environmental and a culture of innovation. I come from a city in Latin America called Medellín in Colombia. And that city, 20 years ago, was the most uh, dangerous city in the world. We had 365 deaths by, by killing people in 100,000 inhabitants. It was the worst. It was the most violent world, uh, city in the world. Somehow, the city was able, through innovation, science, and technology, to convert that city in the most advanced and the most innovative city in the world, over and above New York, Tel Aviv, And also, it became recognized by the Singapore government as the most innovative city social-wise, because it redeemed the low end of the pyramid. So therefore, my belief is that Miami could become the replication of that particular example worldwide because Miami has the capacity to be, well, number one, Miami is the true capital of Latin America. That is, <laughs> that is undisputed. Oh uh, yeah, we,
0: we know that. That. Is, right. that is
1: undisputed. But in addition to that, because being what it is and having the influx of companies and people that are coming right now recognizing the right. importance of Miami, I think that the, the association between the public sector, private sector, academia, and NGOs in Miami could be the next agent of change, not only for Miami and the United States, but a very vast region in the world.
0: Wow. <laughs> wow. That's... And I, you know, I, I've not heard it quite, quite put that way. Everyone has more the focus of Miami becoming the next Silicon Valley through this osmosis of bringing in tech workers. But the way you're speaking of it is a multi-layer approach. So that's amazing.
1: Because what happened, the danger that we have in Miami is that unless we do not create the culture of innovation in the population of Miami, these companies that are coming right now, in two or three years' time, if they don't find the talent that they are looking for, they will be right. it again. Yeah. So unless we don't, I mean, Miami has had a culture of tourism and uh, Miami has had a culture of entertainment but, and services. But it has not had a culture until now of innovation, science, and technology. What we need to do right now is to really um, cement the culture of innovation, science, and technology into the wide spectrum of the population, in order for people to continue coming and staying. The
0: and that staying has to power now. Has
1: to, and that has to happen now. Right. And that's what we is the challenge, but the opportunity that right. we have right now.
0: Love wow. it. I love it. Opportunities abound. Yeah, absolutely. Meeting the challenge. Thank you, Rodrigo, so much. This was amazing. Thank you, guys, and congratulations
1: for the job you're doing. Fantastic. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Thank you.